Welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Our last lesson revealed how God commanded Peter to preach the good news about Jesus to Cornelius, a Roman centurion who was living in the city of Caesarea. And in Acts 10, we learned how the Gentiles believed Peter's message and were immediately filled with the Holy Spirit as proof that God had accepted them. As we pick up our text in Acts 11 verse 1, Luke continues to reveal the magnitude of what had just happened, as well as how difficult it was for some of the Jewish brothers and sisters to accept. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went to the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. When Peter returned to Jerusalem, he was met with criticism for having eaten with Gentiles. Apparently, a group of circumcised believers, in other words, those from a Jewish background, were offended by his actions. This legalistic group would become more and more vocal throughout the New Testament. Eventually, they formed a party known as the Circumcision and would become a great irritation to Paul, who warned many of the young churches against them. Salvation had indeed come from the Jews, for Jesus was not only Jewish as to his earthly heritage, he was the fulfillment of all God's salvation promises made to Israel from the very beginning. However, this group believed that salvation was for the Jews alone. That meant that they believed people had to be circumcised and become Jewish before they could accept Jesus. Jesus as their saviour and be baptised. Peter tried to help them understand what God had done. Luke tells us, starting from the very beginning, Peter explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. In the next verses, he describes the vision of the sheet with all of the animals on it that he saw while praying and of how God had told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. He then revealed that he had refused to do so because nothing impure or unclean had ever entered his mouth. Peter told them of how the voice had spoken three times from heaven, instructing that he was not to call anything impure that God had made clean. Peter reveals how God impressed upon his heart that the Lord was able to make even the vilest creature clean, and how God then commanded him to have no hesitation about going with Cornelius's men. He was not to discriminate against them because they were Gentiles. Peter then mentions that he took six believing brothers with him, all who would have been from a Jewish background, and that they too had witnessed what the Holy Spirit had done, giving the Gentiles the same gift given to the Jews who had believed in the Lord Jesus. Together with Peter himself, 
That made a total of seven who had witnessed the events that took place in Caesarea. In Egyptian law, which the Jews would have known well, seven witnesses were necessary to completely prove a case. In Roman law, which they also were familiar with, seven seals were necessary to validate any important document. And so Peter is really saying, I'm not arguing with you. I'm telling you the facts. And of these facts, there are seven witnesses. The case is proved. God has accepted the Gentiles and poured out his Holy Spirit on all who believed, just as he did with us. Cornelius and his whole household had been saved once they heard the gospel and believed in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. We're told that the believers in Jerusalem, when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then God has granted even to Gentiles repentance unto life. For now, Those of the circumcision accepted what God had done and that he had indeed granted even to Gentiles the eternal life that comes through repentance. Why do I say for now? Well, because that argument against accepting the Gentiles will rear its head again in Acts 14 and 15. Luke then shifts our attention over to what had been happening with the gospel in another part of the world. And he says, now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. You'll remember that after the death of Stephen, the Jerusalem believers were scattered, and Luke tells us some went as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. And wherever they went, they shared the good news of Jesus, obeying his call to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. However, Mistakenly believing salvation was for the Jews alone, they initially shared the good news only with them. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, 300 miles north of Jerusalem. With a population of about half a million people, this busy port city was known for its luxury and its culture. The residents of Antioch were well known for their loose morals and were focused on wealth, power and culture, yet in their hearts they yearned for something more. And we're reminded that no situation is hopeless, for a powerful church came to be formed even in that awful city. Among the believers who travelled there were some from the Greek areas of Cyprus and Cyrene who began to share the news of Christ with their Gentile countrymen and, as a result, a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. I find it remarkable that God used these individuals to take his church into a whole new era where Jew and Gentile would be united in their worship of him. 
and we don't even know their names. All we know is that they came from Cyprus and Cyrene. I think we'd do well to remember that they were people who never took credit for what was done. All they cared about was that the kingdom of God was expanded. And although we don't know their names, God most certainly does. Verse 22 News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. When the leaders of the Jerusalem church learned of what was going on in Antioch, the Holy Spirit led them to send Barnabas to investigate what was going on. Luke tells us that he was a good man who was filled with the Holy Spirit and faith, which was certainly evidenced by the way he lived for the Lord, because we've seen Barnabas before. In Acts chapter 4, he proved his Christian love and generosity by selling a piece of land in order to give the money to the apostles. And in Luke 11, he had been the one to not only learn of Paul's story, but to stand by him in Jerusalem when others were too afraid to accept him. Here in Antioch, Barnabas was quick to focus on God's grace, and this son of encouragement took a very positive approach. He encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts, and to hold fast to the good news of Jesus Christ. With a great number of people who were being brought to the Lord, Barnabas found himself in need of assistance, and as so many of them were Gentiles, he knew just the right man for the job. We learn in verse 25, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Rather like Philip, who left a large ministry to the Samaritans to seek out one man on a desert road, Barnabas was willing to leave the growing work in Antioch to find Paul in Tarsus. We've heard nothing from Paul for the last seven years or so. However, he was the perfect person to help with the ministry in Antioch. Having come from the strict Jewish traditions of the Pharisees, he understood the concerns of the Jewish believers, and yet he was the one whom God had called to minister to the Gentiles. It seems his time had come. He was the man for the moment. And then Luke notes that it was here in Antioch, in a growing Gentile church, that the disciples were first called Christians, or in other words, they were called little Christs. And that was not meant as a compliment. Verse 27. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. 
This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. It's helpful to understand that there were different sets of leaders in the New Testament church. As the gospel began to spread, the leadership fell to the apostles and their authority was accepted in all the church groups in different cities. Additionally, elders were appointed within each individual church to act as overseers. And then there were the prophets who traveled about from church to church. The prophets were an important part of the early church and they were known for their humility and hard work. These individuals, as those we will see here in Acts 11, were sometimes used by God to foretell the future, but more often they gave insight into his will in any given situation to help build the faith of God's people. Their influence was great, and so it's not surprising that Scripture gives certain warnings as to the role of the prophet and also tells how a false prophet might be identified. Because prophets often foretold what would come to pass, Deuteronomy 18.22 cautions that if what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. They are not to be listened to. However, it was always God who was to be glorified and even if the sign or wonder spoken of takes place, if the prophet should say, let us follow other gods and let us worship them, they were to be ignored. For, and I quote, it is the Lord your God you must follow and him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him, serve him and hold fast to him. When these prophets from Jerusalem arrived in Antioch, one of them, named Agabus, speaking in the power of the Holy Spirit, warned the church of a great famine that was coming to the Roman Empire. And Luke confirms that this did happen during the reign of Emperor Claudius. You may be interested to know that this event is even verified by non-Christian historians of the time. A great famine did come upon the land between AD 41 and AD 54. But notice the additional effects of the prophecy on God's people. They were immediately motivated to respond to God's warning. The believers in this largely Gentile group gave whatever they could to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. Imagine the uniting effect that this would have had on the church as the Gentile brothers and sisters came to the aid of their Jewish counterparts. This incident is significant for it shows the unity of early believers despite their different backgrounds. It was unthinkable that one part of the church should ignore another part that was experiencing difficulty for they saw the church as a whole. It fell to Barnabas and Paul to take their gift to the church in Jerusalem. And as chapter 12 begins, we realize that the church in Judea was facing additional difficulties. 
It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. A new wave of persecution arose against the leaders of the Jerusalem church, this time from King Herod, who was trying to gain the approval of the Jewish leadership. Herod was actually the title given to whatever king the Romans appointed over the Jewish people. Over the years, there had been many different Herods. For example, the Gospels mention Herod the Great, who killed the babies around the time of Christ's birth in the hopes of protecting his own authority from this one he had heard was born to be king. One of his sons, Herod Antipas, had been the king who had put John the Baptist to death. The Herod here in Acts 12 was Herod Agrippa, a nephew of Herod Antipas and also one of the grandsons of Herod the Great. In truth, he was as evil as his predecessors in harassing the Christians in Judea in order to gain favor with the Jewish religious leaders. Focusing on the church leadership in Jerusalem, his first act was to arrest Christ's own disciple James, the brother of John, whom he had put to death with the sword. He also planned to put Peter to death and had him arrested also. However, his plan was disrupted because the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the special religious holiday that was associated with Passover, prevented him from carrying out his plan immediately because he didn't want to offend the Jewish religious leaders. It was no accident that Peter and James were targeted first. They had been among Jesus' closest friends and were now influential leaders in the Jerusalem church. Luke reports that because of the festival, Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. You know, there's much we can learn from this passage. 
The greatest safety measures had been taken to make sure Peter did not escape. At any given time, he was surrounded by four soldiers. He was bound by chains to two of them, one on either side, and two others stood guard at the door of the prison. Peter was a high-profile prisoner and there were extremely high stakes involved in keeping him in custody. Suddenly, the night before Peter's trial and in response to the church's earnest prayer to God for him, Peter was miraculously set free by an angel who led him from the prison despite his many highly motivated guards. Though at the time Peter thought he was having a vision, he had enough sense to obey the angel's commands and followed him past the other guards. The iron gate leading into the city mysteriously opened before them, and after a short way the angel left him, and we're told in verse 11, Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept on insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. Peter knew without a doubt that the Lord had delivered him not only from Herod but from the Jewish religious leaders as well, and his first thought was to go to the house of John Mark's mother, Mary, where he knew that the church would be gathered to pray as was their custom. It's worth noting that this John Mark is a different disciple from John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and we'll see this young man mentioned later in the book of Acts. I find this message so interesting because though the Lord had miraculously opened the strong iron gate into the city for Peter, he did not do the same at the door of Mary's house, which teaches me that though he sets many open doors before us as his people, there are perhaps still some that we will have to have opened for us by others. I believe that if Peter had not still been in terrible danger, he might have found this funny when Rhoda, in her excitement, forgot to let him in. But before we laugh at her, let's not forget the remarkable courage she showed in coming to the door in the first place. This occurred in the middle of the night, when likely the only people who would be knocking would be Herod's soldiers come to arrest them, and yet she still went to answer the door. 
I find the reaction of the rest of the believers interesting too, because although they have been praying for a miracle, it seems they can't believe that God has actually answered their prayers after all. But the knocking continued until finally they all cautiously approached the door together. Can you imagine their joy and astonishment as the door creaked open to reveal Peter standing there? They apparently made so much noise that Peter had to motion for them to be quiet as he described how the Lord had set him free. And before he hurried off into the night, Peter instructed them to take the news of his deliverance to James, who was the recognized leader of the church in Jerusalem. Now, I realize that some of you might be wondering at this point, but didn't you say that James had just been killed before Peter's arrest? And that is true. But the leader of the Jerusalem church was a different James whom many believe to be the half-brother of Jesus, who came to faith only after Christ had risen from the dead. We'll meet this James at a meeting of the church council in Jerusalem in Acts 15, where he will speak with great authority. Luke goes on to reveal that in the morning there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. Can you imagine the guards' anxiety? We mentioned earlier there were high stakes involved in Peter's incarceration. According to Roman law, a guard who lost a prisoner or allowed them to escape would have to suffer the prisoner's fate in their place. These guards were put to death because that was what had originally been planned for Peter. Notice, though, that the penalty is carried out at Herod's command. He was not compelled to use the Roman law in this case, but evil man that he was, he did so anyway. We're told that Herod then traveled to Caesarea, where he stayed for a time. According to verse 20, he'd been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now, we're not sure why Herod was quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but as they depended on Judea for food, they were highly motivated to resolve their problem. 
The Greek language that Luke uses here implies that in securing the support of Herod's personal servant, Blastus, the representatives of Tyre and Sidon had really bribed him to help them make peace with Herod. A Jewish historian of the time called Josephus also wrote about what happened, though from a Jewish perspective, because he was not a follower of Christ. Josephus reports that Herod Agrippa agreed to meet the foreign representatives at a festival in Caesarea that was being held to celebrate the Roman Emperor Claudius. He discloses that on the second day, Herod entered the theatre in Caesarea at dawn, dressed in a garment of woven silver, which gleamed in the rays of the rising sun. His flatterers at once started addressing him as a god. You see, they used flattery in order to gain his favour, but Herod Agrippa gladly accepted their praise, and as a result, Luke tells us in verse 23, that immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. Josephus confirms they carried him into the palace where he died after five days of continuous pain in his abdomen. He was 54 years old and in the seventh year of his reign. I want you to notice the contrast here. At the beginning of Acts 12, Herod had been in command. James had been killed, Peter arrested, and it seems as if the whole church was on the run. But here, in verse 24 of that same chapter, Herod is dead and gone, but the word of God continued to increase and spread. And when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem to Antioch, taking John Mark with them. God's purposes had prevailed, not man's, and the work of God continued. You know, we need to remember that. For no matter what the world looks like, God's purposes will triumph and the men that stand opposed to him will come to nothing in the end. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.